From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from Dublin today is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and of course, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On this episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we are speaking with David Wellert, Regulatory Affairs Manager at Orsted. Orsted is a global leader in renewable energy generation projects, particularly when it comes to the rapidly expanding wind energy sector. Headquartered in Denmark, the company has a global reach across multiple continents and technologies. David helps lead Orsted's policy and regulatory engagement in the United Kingdom and beyond. And we are excited to have him with us on the show to discuss how Orsted is looking at and deploying hydrogen technologies and how they expect to utilize hydrogen in a decarbonized energy future. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys, the August episodes, the tail end of season three. How's everybody doing? Let's start with you, Chris. London, life is good. All going well? Uh, yeah, I think uh, like Europe, we probably need a bit more rain, which uh, I know people are going to laugh that an Englishman saying we need more rain, but we really probably do. Um, <laughs> uh, otherwise, God, it's uh, I think everyone keeps feeling like it's uh, it can't get busier and then it does. Um, it was good to have a little bit of downtime in the summer to kind of catch up a bit. I think it's going to be a pretty busy uh, end of the year. What about you, Andrew? How's it been stateside? Yeah, can't complain. Same old, same old thing over here in D.C. I guess the big news on our end is, uh, I suppose, the passage and signature into law of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which has been all the rage around here in D.C. recently. So, Am I being very stupid there, Andrew? What's that? I have to ask, am I being really stupid on this one? Because Inflation Reduction Act sounds like a very strange name for something that I, I had thought, maybe this is my ignorance, was uh, was an energy bill. Well, you, I wouldn't say it's a stupid <laughs> comment, uh, Chris. Uh, I think what we, the, the previous iteration of this would have been probably best categorized as the Build Back Better Act, which has then been basically gutted in a lot of ways and brought back down to essentially being an energy-focused bill. Would you say that's... Uh, so this is this is kind of the last iteration through reconciliation of what would have been in a bigger package, the Build Back Better Act. Would you say that's accurate, Patrick? Am I, uh, I'm probably missing some, some details there, but that's kind of how I think of that progression. Yeah, I I, th- I don't know. Is I'm not a I'm not a policy specialist. I'm not sure that it matters in the end. But. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the bit that I'll take is a, a three dollar uh, a kilogram PTC with obviously uh, carbon intensity dictating the the decline from that kind of upper level, uh, three dollars a kilogram, and then uh, the renewal of the ITC and PTC for for wind solar, and uh, I think there's a an investment tax credit for fuel cells as well. And yeah, there's there's a lot still to, to run on the road, but those were huge, huge bills or huge, huge parts of the bill. And uh, I don't know uh, the specificity of uh, kind of what was negotiated in all other areas. On how we got the name that we got. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, the, the fun part starts now, Chris, with the 
Treasury beginning the implementation process of the PTC and all the all the fun stuff that comes with being the implementing agency. So strap on for that, Chris. But I think to your point, it is probably a poor name for what <laughs> for what is more more in substance and energy bill. But here we are. So uh, it's a good question. No, appreciate that. Um, and sorry, I, I, I did sort of distracted us. And of course, uh, Patrick, how's your summer been? I mean, this you've uh, you've finally crossed the pond for the first time. Yeah, yeah, been here, been here for in a little while. Anyway. Been here for a little bit. Been uh, I, I, it has been distinctly hotter than I remember it being, uh, which maybe says something about uh, our our general condition, right? And uh, the lack of air conditioning in 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 Ireland and I believe in the UK is also a point of pain but otherwise very nice to be back for a bit and um and yeah it's, it's not been a quiet summer right so uh busy busy and lots more to come i think in the the next month with the uh the forthcoming you know uh doe foa uh, on uh, hydrogen hubs in the u.s which is going to keep the world <laughs> what are you what's i'll take i'll take that bet there what's your over under on that foa coming out in in september patrick at this stage andrew i i don't i don't take <laughs> bets on these things i just uh ah, fair enough smart man work to get get ready for these things as they you know we know it's coming as to when the wave eventually crashes let's uh let's see that's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, speaking of busy guys, let's uh, let's turn to the substance of the show. Chris, you and I had a chance to sit down with uh, Orsted a couple of weeks ago, maybe maybe a little longer than a couple of weeks ago at this point. But want to give us a little bit of an intro on what we're going to talk about here with uh, with David? Uh, sure. So uh, for this episode, we're speaking to David Wellard from uh, Wellard from Orsted. Um, for those of you who are not so familiar, uh, Orsted previously was uh, called uh, Dong Energy, the Danish oil and natural gas um, state company, um, successfully rebranded as Orsted and is now uh, one of the leading uh, green energy companies in the world. They've deployed some of the largest offshore wind projects in the world. Um, and, and it's an interesting time to have them on the show because they're doing quite a lot um, around hydrogen uh, and not just hydrogen um, in a sort of pure green hydrogen uh, sense, but also uh, power to X. So creating e-fuels, so things like um, green methanol um, and also things like green ammonia. So it's an interesting time um, and it's interesting to have a company here that, uh, you know, has quite successfully transitioned to being uh, seen as a bit of a darling by ESG investors as a clean energy uh, sort of uh, champion or pioneer. And so we're kind of looking forward to hearing David talk a little bit about Orsted and what they do and uh, and, and just almost as importantly as why. Um, just to give a little bit of context to David um, is also the chair of the Renewable UK Green Hydrogen Working Group. Um, and so he works as the regulatory affairs manager for Orsted in the UK. So we do talk a little bit about policy in the episode. And uh, David's really quite uniquely positioned to talk about that, has some uh, really fantastic experience. So I-, I hope our listeners enjoy the show. Perfect, Chris. A thorough as always. So let's get into it and I'll catch you guys on the other side. All right, David. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to quickly uh, turn it over to you to uh, to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Orsted, and then we'll jump right into the questions. Sure. So thanks very much for having me. I'm the head of regulatory affairs for Orsted in the UK. So um, it's a job I've been in for about a year now, and it's a small team that, that I lead. Uh, it's about four 
four or five of us um, and between us we pick up whatever it is that we think is most important in the regulatory world for the business in the UK. So I think regulatory affairs is one of those kind of roles where you, you could half the headcount, you could double the headcount and people would still be just as busy. We have to be fairly selective in, in what we pick up. Within that, the business has identified over the last year or two that, that hydrogen is a really important topic for us for reasons we can go into. So quite a big part of, of my work and the work of my team is around understanding in the UK where that direction of travel is for, for hydrogen and, and the regulatory framework that's evolving and, and how we can take part in trying to be part of that conversation. And let's let's take a, a little bit of a step back here. And if you wouldn't mind telling, uh, talking a little bit about who Orsted is and what Orsted does, I, I, you know, in the energy world, it's a household name, but but writ broadly, maybe maybe not as well known. So mm. you could maybe tell us a little bit about what you guys do. That would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a it's important to, to say something because it it's something that's changed within the last five years. So. Ørsted is a Danish company and an energy company and has been in existence for quite a, a number of years. But um, the, the thing I think people know us most for is the transition that was made about five years ago now. We were previously Dong, and that was the Danish oil and natural gas company. And there was a very deliberate move to go from being a company that was ostensibly had its roots in, in oil and gas and had a large oil and gas upstream presence and and transitioning into a greener company which which only uh, invested in the types of the assets that, that we believe in and and there is the the very strong ethos in the company that we should be doing sustainable business and and we want to see a world that runs entirely on green energy so in 2017 we transitioned from dong energy to ersted and disposed of our our upstream oil and gas businesses so at that point, we, we made the commitment that we were going to focus our investments in, in renewable technology, sustainability. And it's been, a, I think, a very well-received transition within the industry. And to give you an idea of, of where we are now, we, we're, a leading, we're, we're the global leading offshore wind company. So we've got seven and a half gigawatts of installed wind capacity around the world and, and our markets at the moment where, the, where they exist, that's the UK, Denmark, the Netherlands, Germany. But we are uh, building out our pipeline. We've got projects in the US. We've got projects in the APAC region. And um, the, um, the idea is that we will continue to build out offshore. Uh, we're not stopping that at all. And we'll go from 7.5 gigawatts now to 30 gigawatts in 2030. So um, to, to put that into context, Right now, in um, we're sat here. It's it's well, I'm sat in in uh, Britain in my office. It's it's a Wednesday afternoon in summer, and the national national grid is providing about thirty one, thirty two gigawatts of, of electricity. So, the ambition is that that's that's about the level of capacity that we should have installed globally in twenty thirty, just through our offshore wind portfolio. So, gives you an idea of of the size of the global operation. Um, as I mentioned. I'm focused on the UK and in the UK, we've got about five gigawatts of wind installed and we will be very quickly announcing that that's going up to about six, just over six when we inaugurate the Hornsey 2 wind farm. That's going to be the largest wind farm in the world, offshore wind farm, I should say. 
the largest in the world at the point that enters operation. And we've held that record for, I think, four years now of having the largest offshore wind farm. We've held it consecutively, but between different wind farms, we keep breaking our own record. So Hornsey 2 will be the next largest offshore wind farm in the world. And, you know, it's, it's a really exciting thing to see all of these wind farms come in in the UK because they all connect into areas that have a lot of industry and need decarbonizing and we can support communities and provide jobs and skills and prop up you know the supply chain investments that come with it so at the moment that's that's the core business and it's really exciting to be a part of and i guess that's what we're best known for when it comes to hydrogen probably less well known so uh there's there's a bit more that we can say about that no, and I mean, it is amazing because it's probably one of the most successful rebrandings and genuine transitions from sort of an oil and gas established major across into being a clean energy mm. um, superpower. I mean, I think for sort of listeners less familiar, it's a little bit like BP going from being an oil and gas company to being an actual green company, yeah. um, which, you know, it, which I think also has managed to do in a really profound way. Mm. Um, there probably is quite an interesting story about the skill set from the oil and gas sector that Dong had and whether that has helped to make it an offshore wind superpower that's probably quite an interesting yeah. topic to, to come on to another day but but let's uh, you know this is about a podcast about hydrogen so maybe sticking on the theme um so obviously you built this reputation as a global leader in offshore wind so why is green hydrogen now part of the portfolio how does that sit with the current assets that you have and i guess the future portfolio that you're looking to develop at Austin? it was you know, it's a really interesting one when i when i started in this role about a year ago because I, I'd been in renewables at the start of my career and, and then I've always been in the energy sector, but this was my, my return, if you like, coming home and trying to see how things had changed in that time. And it was clear that first that there was something really important in the hydrogen space. So when I was getting used to the, the company and trying to understand the strategy, it was there in our strategic aspirations. We've got must-win battles that represent our strategy that we've communicated to the outside world. And one of them is to build a transformational renewable hydrogen business. And what was interesting when I was getting used to the company and, and having a look at you know, what, what are renewable companies doing now, now that I'm coming back into that world. And I actually found it surprising that there weren't more renewable developers out there with a similar message because it's in our strategy because actually that's that's a big part of what it takes to continue to build out renewables. We're not just small scale anymore where you build something, you connect it to the network, and then it's not your problem anymore because actually you're, you're just a drop in the ocean. There's a significant chunk of generation that is being provided from renewables. And the idea that you can just keep, you can keep building stuff and providing electricity to the grid without thinking about what happens next, that, that's just not the way it's going to go if you are going to be seen as a big player in the market. You have to address the problem of actually what, what happens to that because it's not correlated with, with demand because it's so dependent on weather patterns. So what's your answer to that? And if you don't have something like a storage asset or a hydrogen uh, electrolyzer or something, what is your story around it? So a big part of this for us that is we know we have to find a way of integrating renewables and at scale, because if there are difficulties matching supply and demand, they're not going away. They're only going to become more and more acute. So it's a part of what we need to do 
to be future proof, if you like. And the other part of it, I guess, is you know, there's a very strategic um, matching up there, a synergy between our core business and hydrogen. But the other part is it gives us access to to new end users we would never have had the chance to work with. So it might not be the fundamental driver, but it makes it so much more interesting. In the past, our, our client would always be the system operator. You could look at it that way. Now we're, you know, we, we need to engage with people that are in aviation and, and shipping and, and all kinds of end use sets as we would never have thought of before. And that's really, really interesting. And it fits really well with the ethos of the company, which is it's not just about electricity. It's the energy that the world needs. Taking that and building into it a little bit more specifics, could you tell us a little bit about the Gigastack project and how that fits with the approach that you guys are, that Orsted is taking and what you've just described? And obviously, I know you guys do other things apart from Gigastack as well. So while Gigastack is obviously one in the UK, we know if there are others that you feel you need to show off about or pull attention to, then I'm sure listeners would find that interesting too. Yeah, sure. Um, the Gigastack project, I'll start with that. So that's that's a UK green hydrogen project and it's the largest green hydrogen project, most advanced green hydrogen project at that kind of scale. And I'm, I'm talking 100 megawatt scale that's, that's in the UK. So it's a really interesting project. It's a really exciting project for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, it's an end-to-end solution. So overview of the project it takes power from hornsey 2 wind farm which is soon to enter operation so that the project would take power from the wind farm use that to power an electrolyzer that will then provide hydrogen to the Philips 66 refinery which is in the the humber region in the uk and the humber region is it's a heavily industrialized area in, in the country so i guess in a fortunate position that we've got a lot of wind farms that are offshore in the North Sea and connect in very close to an industrial centre. So this is an end-to-end solution. We've got the initial uh, energy input and we've got the demand case and there is no need for any large-scale transportation in order to, to get the hydrogen where it needs to go. So the the first really exciting thing, therefore, is, you know, we've we've got that end, end-to-end piece, but the second part is the scale of it, that this is something that we can operate at 100 megawatts to start with, with potential to expand. I guess another thing about it that's that's really exciting is that we've, we've got it to a, an advanced point, and by that I mean we've been through a couple of, of development phases in the project and, and finished a feed study. And actually, if you, if you want to find more information about it, we published our report the end of our second phase that's at the end of the, the feed period, the feed study period, and that's available online. And the whole point of, of the project up to now has, has been to get to this point, to say, this is what a blueprint looks like. If you had a project that looked like this in the UK, here's how you can get it going. So looking at the... Um, the commercial barriers, the technical barriers, regulatory barriers, and and trying to address some of those. So we're now at the point with the project where we feel we've done the the analysis and we've we've worked out what it could look like. Next would be to build it, right? So um, we need to have a look at what what the environment for for doing that looks like and take a financial decision. And once we get to that point. It's just a question of, of project management, execution, and getting the thing built. So it's it's a really exciting advanced stage, and also because it, of, of where it is, the benefits to to the local economy for you know the, the, the jobs, the skills. 
supply chains for for um, electrolyzers and, and other components that that would be required. It's it's a really good story, and actually, we've been involved in that region to provide new jobs and skills to to people for that that are, we'd find those those jobs in the offshore wind sector, but to be able to find another area of employment that we can help to boost is, is really exciting. And from for the Gigasec project or or other similar that you guys are looking at, I mean, are we talking from an offtake perspective and an end use perspective, are we think is is that typically or it conceptually is that going to be long duration energy storage or are you are is Orsted and its partners potentially looking at other end use applications selling hydrogen fuel for heavy duty transportation or anything like that or are we not or are we not there yet in terms yeah. of what the exact offtake will look look like i think i mean for for us that i can say across the board we're looking at a whole bunch of different things right um another project that that i can mention it's it's in the u.s we signed a deal with with mesk and that's a an e-methanol project so so mesk we're going to offtake enough i think three hundred thousand tons a year or so enough to, to power 12 12 new vessels so we're we're certainly interested in in different kinds of applications different geographies and i i was having an interesting discussion the other day with someone about this and you know what what is it that's going to determine the kind of of run pattern of the different projects and is it is it dictated by the the producer or the end demand or something else and and you know what i I don't know if there is an answer yet. I think that we're in such a nascent stage that if the solution is that you run the electrolyzer one way and then have a storage facility or, or actually the economics only stack up if you completely match your production to what your your demand requires, we're probably going to have to be fairly flexible about that. And I think the whole industry is. So I I think we're, we've got to make sure that we just maintain the ability to learn those lessons over the coming years so that we can adapt and find out actually what is what is the way of operating and and managing the commercial arrangements that's that's going to kickstart this and, and provide the momentum that we need to, to scale up quickly. Always wise to preserve uh, optionality, as I'm sure you guys know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But it's, it's quite interesting, right? And I guess this is kind of is the thing about Gigastack and about, um, you know, the, the e-fuel project that you're working on in North America, you know, to some extent, this plays into the, you know, the book of very large projects nicely, right? It's a large project at scale, single off-taker, um, kind of makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, I guess the, the question a little bit is when also thinks about green hydrogen, you know, are you really focused on, in some ways, those kind of 200 million plus projects? And, you know, you see this as sort of a another way of kind of playing to your expertise, which is demonstrable track record in building large scale green energy infrastructure, which has a very high capex. Or is there also an interest in that smaller distributed side of the market? Because of course, it is an early market. And as you point out, 100 megawatts is already quite big by market standards. So I'd just be interested to kind of get your thoughts on that. And and, and if you're not going to develop overtly, is there a strategy of potentially partnering with people on the PPA side with all the offshore wind you've coming on for smaller projects that maybe you don't develop, but you go through? Is, is there been a discussion on that? Is there a public view on that? Yeah, there's definitely a, a strategic uh, case for, for for why we we are looking at some some projects that, that are at the larger end of, of the scale. And, and I think you've, you've got that right, Chris. It, there's, 
we we have capital to deploy and we do look to to um, get a, a good good sized project that, that can help to, to to get some good returns back and and we've been on a similar journey with offshore wind where we've invested quite heavily because we can see the it's not just the return on investment for us but it's it's the whole um, cost reduction journey that comes out of it for for an industry that's trying to to develop and establish itself and and that's been very successful in offshore wind and i i think our starting point might be similar in in that you know that's what we know and it's it's what we're happy to do but at the same time where are the opportunities going to emerge and if there's a if there's an opportunity that that comes up that asks us questions about how much we want to play in a slightly different area of the market in different size of projects then we'd we'd be foolish not to consider it not to give it a bit of attention but I think it's it's more a question of, of seeing how the market opens up and and actually what is the it's not just for us what is the role of a big utility in this what is it that we bring to the to party that that others don't and are we best placed to deliver certain types of technology compared to others? <laughs> yeah, well, Orsted, playing to its strengths, which I think is uh, probably the right approach, right? <laughs> yeah, so, I, I think that's fair enough. So as Andrew says, playing to strengths, right? So clearly it makes sense to play to strengths. Um, you know, if the strength is kind of that larger scale focus, then maybe you can talk a little bit about why you see policy as being important to sort of this enabling of the green hydrogen economy. And, you know, Gigastax benefited obviously a lot from policy, but um, Gigastax also points out a number of flaws in policy or at least areas where you felt policy was withholding it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about for people who aren't so aware, because I don't think people necessarily are, how you and your role think about how a company like Orsted should engage with government on policy. Just, you know, actually more basically, how do you go in and engage with them on these kinds of topics where you have all these different interests, offshore wind, battery, hydrogen, how you how you manage that? And then specifically, what is it in the hydrogen space that you're asking for? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's a really important thing to understand. And, and even internally, um, when I'm talking to colleagues in Ersted and there'll be a part of the business that's got a really important question or a need and wants to go and talk to a decision maker. But but it's important you've, you've got someone that's keeping track of all of those asks so that when you do go and, and you have a conversation, it's you're you're not saying things in in the wrong order or things that don't quite fit together. You 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 know you've got a coordinated strategy when it comes to engaging with decision makers. Um, I would probably f- f- so part of your question. I'll flip it on its head. So why is policy important to enabling green hydrogen and and why is it important to us? I think if we go the other way around, why is why is green hydrogen or why why are renewables why are they important to policy objectives is an interesting question because it's not just energy policy it's it's wider government targets it's the ambition of governments and and how these sectors give something that that is required so we've talked a little bit about it already in terms of the the economic development that that you get from from these sectors and and particularly in green hydrogen there is something new that you can get. And I think politicians are very aware of that. You can get economic development and in industrial heartlands as well. And you can create jobs. You can create maybe some new export products. And at the same time, decarbonization of society is is hugely compelling, um, particularly where you're talking about hard to abate sectors. And you're talking about a, a store of energy that's in a, a kind of 
a well-understood vector, i.e. its chemical storage. It might not be exactly the same as hydrocarbons, but nevertheless, we've got used to using energy in a form of storage that's chemical. So anything that you can do to, to progress the story for hydrogen has potential. And therefore, that's why there's so much interest, I think, from policymakers in understanding just how far does this go? So there are these potential benefits. I think that's then the, the interesting question for a company like ours to go maybe to, before answering that question, Chris, to go back to the other part of yours. Why why do we feel the need to to be involved in, in those conversations with decision makers? It's exactly to answer that question, isn't it? Say, well, if it's so good, why do you need our help? You know, as, as government, why do you need to come to us and ask us for X, Y, Z? It's to point out actually what is required. Decision makers tend to be at an awful disadvantage in terms of information. They're always trying to understand the things they don't know in order to make better policy decisions. And you can go and ask industry, but you'll get lobbied. So how do you make sure you balance that right, getting the information that you need, but at the same time not being sold a story that that maybe just suits the company that's talking to you at the time. So when we think about what we're doing in the regulatory affairs team or the public affairs team I work with very closely here, it's about trying to make sure that the messages get through. So it's understood when we talk about the benefits for, for green hydrogen, it's nuanced. It doesn't just happen today. And actually, there's a really important trade-off conversation to have. If you want all of this, it's not cost competitive right now. So what's the right thing to do? How much should society be paying today for the uh, the upfront investment that means that in the future you get all of those benefits fully unlocked? So for, for green hydrogen, it's really a story of what can you do to get to scale as fast as possible, to drive costs down as fast as possible so that you're, you're able to realize the full value of the proposition. I would say, David, it's a bit of a masterclass in proper approach to, uh, to lobbying, where you flip the question and first tell a politician <laughs> how you can help them get what they want before making that ask, right? Absolutely. So, uh, you need to... all, all up-and-coming policymaker or uh, uh, government affairs uh, uh, employees should take note on that one. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Andrew is sort of comparing notes. <laughs> right. just, I'm making notes over here. That's right. If you can, uh, right, if you can get someone to believe in what you're trying to sell, they'll sell for you, something like that, right? Is that the story? That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, and I wonder to that end, David, I know our, our time is running short here, but and, and I'm sure Chris always has some follow-up questions, so I don't want to step on his toes, but just very quickly, in terms of what kinds of policies, and I know, you know, your your area of focus is the UK, so, you know, maybe some examples there, but just even writ broadly, what kind of policies for green hydrogen and for Orsted looking at projects in the green hydrogen space do you guys see as most effective to the extent you can speak about that i know some of that's going to be your own kind of internal thoughts but what you can think about like what kind of policies are you guys looking for regulatory frameworks that make sense for the mission you guys have with your partners it's the revenue support that's absolutely crucial so it's not maybe it's not a surprise and it's been a huge topic in the uk uh it's it's a big topic elsewhere of course the revenue support is what helps you get cost competitive. If, if you're trying to drive out costs, 
Um, you can provide capex. You can you can waive some fees at different points, and it, it might help to bring your levelized costs down. But actually, if you're going to inspire investor confidence, you need to be able to demonstrate how you stabilize returns. So, from our perspective, you know we we invest a lot in the UK, and we're not going to stop doing that. We've invested billions, and we will we will keep investing in offshore wind, and we we want to invest in green hydrogen too, but our risk profile is where well, we, we would like to see stable returns, predictable investment opportunities and, and a stable pipeline. So to get there, and, and actually it might be worth just drawing on a, the lessons learned from the renewables sector. And um, without overplaying the, the similarities, we started off with a supplier obligation. I'll start the journey there in, in the UK. We had a supplier obligation which brought forward a lot of renewables. And the idea of that is you, you place an incentive on the, the end customer effectively. It's the retailer that has to source a certain proportion of electricity from a renewable source. And the benefit of doing things like doing things that way is you don't overcommit the amount that you're spending because you can tweak it. You can change just how much that proportion is or just how large the penalty is if you don't meet that requirement as a retailer so there's a level of control that's retained in case it turns out this whole thing's a dud and there's no point spending any more time and money on it but after a while the industry had established to the point where we thought you know what actually there's there's really something with huge potential here if we can scale it up but what's holding the industry back is that investor confidence so we transitioned from that supplier obligation to what we now have, which is a contract for, diff- a contract for different scheme. And that provides the top up, if you like, or the payback so that the investor always gets stable return. That's the idea of it. And because you've got that investor uh, certainty, you can start to ask the investor to do more like show how are you going to invest in the whole supply chain? How are you going to scale up? And I I mentioned that because what we're trying to do in hydrogen feels like all of that at once. We're trying to do that piece where investors can, can, can support across the entire value chain, but we don't have the time to do the first bit of checking. Does it, does it really work? You know, are we, are we happy with all of this? And as an investor, you know, what, what is the instrument you want? Well, if you're being asked to provide support to the whole industry and, and, and bring about a new scale, new pace, do it all very quickly, you do need that, that kind of revenue support that comes through something like a contract for difference. So that, that is the primary tool that's, that's going to help us and it's going to help the rest of the industry to come forward, I think. And it has been very successful. We've seen costs being driven down in the renewable sector as a result of, of this instrument. And there's every reason to think, if you can get it right, that similar lessons can be learned in, in green hydrogen. I mean, a question on this one. I mean, you know, at the Renewable UK Green Hydrogen inaugural conference, there was a lot of talk about price support. In fact, it came up continuously for a number of things. And, you know, clearly investors like price support, right? Because when I'm being slightly unfair to investors, they don't really have to do very much work when there's price support. You know, you don't have to figure out how you're going to do that, right? So to an extent, it's like saying, well, do you want free money? And of course, the answer is yes. So of course, people will invest in that. But 
you know, this is also not a long-term model, right? I mean, you know, the, the total value of the UK energy market is 150 billion pounds a year. The government cannot underwrite all of that and do everything else. So, you know, maybe just drawing from the offshore wind experience that Orsted has, you know, how long is it actually necessary to have price support and what other non-price support regulatory incentives matter? Because, you know, yes, maybe at the beginning, there's a bit of first mover disadvantage risk, which I do think is real and which government can help to take some of the pressure off. But actually, after that, beyond that first mover disadvantage on price, there must be certain just market design pieces that you could maybe talk to. Um, and it'd be interesting just to get your views. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right that the the intention of, of providing price support and when it works, it, it happens is you reduce the amount that you're paying, right? So on a unit basis, the, the level of support should go down because that's the return for, for government. You, you allow a certain amount of price support and in return you should be getting something. And, and if, that, if, if, your, if your instrument that you've allowed the market to access hasn't brought prices down, something is, is probably going, going astray somewhere, there comes a point where you, you decide actually there's no more support needed or the, the support instrument is, is doing something different. So it's not actually necessarily at a different level to what you would get in the wholesale market. It's just taking out maybe some of the volatility and earnings. And, and that's, I guess, more about what, what the investors need. And it might not be more uh, support on price, but just stabilizing and the net effect for the for the consumer over a long period of time is, is pretty pretty neutral, but there might just be problems with the market itself that that you need some kind of tempering of, of the volatility there. But you're right. Ultimately, you should be getting to a point where you've made the technology cost competitive, and you say that's enough now. <laughs> if you can't compete, what have you been doing? You should be willing to 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 operate without the same level of of support. So from that point onwards, um, I think it's a question of, of looking at what's, what's been happening in the market. And you, you don't start this at the late when you realize that you've got a cost competitive technology. But as you get to that point, you think, what is happening in the market? So who is in that market? And are there any structural problems that mean that it's still not a safe place with a you know you could call it a level playing field or not but you know that that ability to compete on the same terms so if there are incumbent technologies um how easy is it for a, a new entrant that's maybe had some price support because of a slightly different technological offering how easy is it for them to come in and and compete just because of the way the market's been set up and do you therefore need to have maybe some some changes to that market design that for green hydrogen will be an interesting conversation because what is the market with its incumbency for hydrogen, right? Um, and therefore, what is it that we're aiming for? You know, the point at which you take away price support or you, you scale it back, is it just you want different technologies to start competing with each other and you, you want to just see who's going to survive in, in the pure capitalist environment of, of cost? Or actually, do you still have a certain set of other objectives that you want to support? So you would rather have a market that, that um, passes some price signals through in different ways. Um, 
I don't know if I've seen that debate played out anywhere yet, though, because we're just at such an early stage and, and we're probably a way off from being able to discuss it. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely right, David. And I think probably at, at a certain point, although these are these conversations are always happening in parallel, right? It's not like price support gets taken away uh, and then we tweak around the margins. You know, these are all happening in parallel. I think probably I, I saw Chris talked about this at a uh, conference relatively recently, if I understood the topic of his panel correctly. So maybe this is what he's driving at. But for instance, in the United States, hydrogen is... is to your point, very nascent technology, right? So where price support is one thing that has to happen and, you know, Congress is dragging its feet on that in the U.S. But, you know, the next the next level is, uh, which is not necessarily a congressional or a federal thing in the United States, but is streamlining those market conditions. So permitting, uh, you know, standardization and safety and things like that. And I wonder if that's similar in the UK that there are discussions going on around that and how that process might look and how that can be tweaked. And as the, as the price support and the technology evolves and familiarity with that, uh, with that technology, then that permitting and that kind of regulatory and zoning structure and all of those kind of red tape things start to need to be tweaked and, and brought down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've seen the same thing uh, in in renewables. You, know, the, the, you may be able to satisfy the the investors, but you still spend four years building the thing when it, you know, getting consent for it rather and permitting for it even before you build it. And, and why does it need to take so long? Okay, there's good reasons. But actually, if Again, it's a trade-off. What what could you get in return for for quicker permitting time? So, th- those sorts of things. Yeah, there's. I, I think any kind of new infrastructure is 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 going to be challenging because of the pace at which we've got to deliver it, as well as the size of the investments required. And that's that's true everywhere, right? It's it's not it's not a UK problem, but that there, there's a need to stop and think about well actually what what could be done to streamline this you're sort of preempting the final question that i had on the list which andrew had also been teasing towards which was you know are there things that other markets are doing that would encourage companies like Orsted to you know, to say right we're gonna you like you know invest more in the uk you know to some extent when you talk across europe you hear everyone going oh the european commission has announced billions and billions for investment and the uk's only done a few hundred million and everyone goes oh that's awful but then you go and talk to people on the ground developing projects and everyone goes, well, the UK is the only place actually developing projects. And, and most you know, people are saying France is too difficult. Germany, there's a lot of noise and all the Spanish ones are massive scale gigawatt exports that no one quite knows if they're going to happen or not. So it, it doesn't seem to be just a case of throwing money at this. There seems to be more to it. So, you know, what else is it that Austin looks at when it's deciding, right, we've got a few billion this year. Are we going north america are we going uk are we going europe are we going frankly anywhere i'm guessing an energy windfall tax doesn't help you guys which is of course the latest threat from the uk government no no i think uh i think any anything that undermines investor confidence is is uh <laughs> it's never never helpful um i i guess it's a tricky question to answer because it's it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things, and I'm naturally I'm going to answer this from a perspective that I come from around regulatory and, and public affairs, which is there's a kind of wider environment that you have to consider, and and it's not just 
the best returns or the most stable regime, but it's how is it fitting in with with your other objectives that you have as a business and and the contributions that you can make to to each market. Do you feel like you can make a return on your investment in terms of being invited back, in terms of um, how it fits in with the rest of your portfolio because this particular market allows you to try this particular technology at this particular time? Um, so the strategic conversations around where you choose to invest and, and your, your direct question, Chris, about, you know, if you had more money, how would you pick a market? You spend, we spend a lot of time talking about it and, and developing our strategy around it because it's, it's never that straightforward. And, and ultimately, I guess a, a principle for us and a principle for everyone in the market should be, we don't know yet. We don't know exactly which market is going to be the most attractive. And every market is, is to some extent competing with every other market because that's the direction it will go in. They'll, someone will probably end up winning in terms of owning the manufacture base for the components that are going to be important in the future, whatever the technology ends up being. So why would you not spread your, your risk a little bit and try a few markets and try a few different consortium projects with different partners and different technologies and if you if you look through some of what we've done historically with with the projects that we've invested in you can probably see a little bit of that you know trying things out across different different markets in the US and Europe with with different types of green hydrogen end use cases with different partners and if nothing else, that's that's a sensible way of diversifying your risk in the early stages and learning lessons. Right. Well, Andrew, I feel like we've uh, we've gone through a lot of questions. Is there anything else you uh, you feel like we want to ask Dave before we let him go? No, I think he's uh, been incredibly gracious with his time and and uh, gamely answered all of our follow up questions. <laughs> so pr- very much appreciated, David, and thank you for making the time to join us. Really a fascinating conversation. Excited to see what Orsted has in, in the plans for the future. So really, thank you again for making the time. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Chris, it's a good conversation with uh, David here. Covered a lot of ground as usual. What uh, what were the big takeaways? Anything stand out to you that you want to touch on? And then we'll uh, we'll hand it over to Patrick and get his thoughts as well. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground. I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I think it's just the scale of, of the way that they work. And um, you know, uh, one of the uh, one of the advisors of Proteum sort of put it to me when we were chatting about kind of. Uh, you know, are we similar or are we different to businesses like uh, Orsted? And they said, you know, when, when you're dealing with these multinational organizations, they're very commodity focused normally. You know, they're very focused on how do I just produce and ship the largest amount of product possible. But it was quite interesting to have David sort of take, you know, I think a few few different perspectives on that, you know, talking about that end customer use case and talking about projects that, you know, are, are definitely very large. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the Gigastack project, which is their 100 megawatt um, green hydrogen project with ITM in the UK, doing other smaller pieces as well. Um, and interesting to just kind of see how some of the, you know, how for them the big driving interest in green hydrogen is is not so much about hydrogen itself. It's about routes to market for all the renewable power that they're generating from offshore wind. Um, and I think perhaps as a final reflection from me, 
the bit here that I think is really important, I think so many people keep missing in this debate around where's hydrogen fit alongside other forms of zero carbon technologies is that, you know, this question of grid integration, grid expansion, and how do you manage that is really not easy. And I think when you've got some of the biggest energy companies in the world that are leaders in clean energy saying, we see hydrogen as an inevitable and an essential way to help get all of those green electrons to market i think it should be forcing people who are perhaps being a little bit fanatical about uh, electrification to pause and go why are the biggest green power producing companies in the world saying they don't think they can get all of these green electrons to market and uh, without going down the green hydrogen route i thought that was a really important um, message that I took away from that discussion. Um, I don't know, Patrick, as a kind of different pair of ears, listening to it, whether you came to some different perspectives or, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about the US, but not a super amount. Um, it'd be interesting just to see how you felt about it. I think it raises the the broader, bigger question, right, around, you know, uh, use use in the near term versus use moving forward. And inevitably, that brings you back to what an entire or you know a very very heavily decarbonized uh, kind of grid but also energy system you know economy would would have to look like right and, and how these things integrate and fit together and there's complexity depending on where you are depending on what resources you have depending on what your your generation profile is whether you know if you have hydroelectric or nuclear how you use that if you have, you know, abundant wind, how you manage that. If you have solar, how you you transition and manage that, right? And inevitably, you know, you have then a mix and a design challenge, you know, leveraging batteries, leveraging, you know, you know, things like potentially pump hydro resources, leveraging things like hydrogen um, storage resources to to provide kind of uh, grid integrity, but also, you know you know it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky challenge and it's also you know folks in the business of dealing with these challenges speaking to those challenges and flagging i i suppose being blunt the you know flagging the designed challenges that we're going to have to inevitably deal with as we kind of move further and further down this pathway but it, but i think to your point chris the, the the technology mix and where everything fits is is far more complex than perhaps uh is generally realized and it's it's you know fundamentally the objective here is to move as you said green electrons to market and if you're trying to do that then then it's a conversation about the most effective mechanism that you can leverage both you know in terms of energy efficiency right and efficiency of system but also economically and how how easy it is to manage electrons or potential uh, electron generation through time and and that's one of the, the kind of the key features to it so you know, I suppose the U.S. is a little bit of a different beast in terms of how how there are kind of many different grids and then, you know, electrical co-ops and there's some level of kind of trading between these and interconnection trading, I know, is in, in Europe also. But, yeah, it's tricky for sure. Sorry, Andrew, go ahead. No, no, not at all. I think you guys bring up something that we – it's constantly a background theme of what, we're, of what we discuss on this show. But I think maybe we take it back one step and maybe I'm getting too broad here, but – Chris, maybe we talk about the fact, like, let's talk about that electrify everything versus their different pathways here that need to be used in order to accomplish our goals, right? Can we maybe take a step back and, and how do we answer in this, you know, for listeners who are not perhaps as steeped in uh, the energy world as we are, but 
take a step back and think about and talk a little bit about why it makes sense and how we answer that that approach of people who say, why create hydrogen from renewable electricity when you should elect when you should clean the grid first, right? Why shouldn't that uh, renewable energy or that offshore wind energy be put into the grid? Why create hydrogen and move that around instead when the grid still needs to be cleaner? Could we maybe take a step back and think about that a little bit? We absolutely can, and you're right. We should. I mean, it's a if you are to look at a market like the United Kingdom or Alstead is a is a leader in deployment, um, you have to recognize and reflect on the scale of the challenge of actually integrating a lot of this power that is being built and being, uh, you know, the, the government's trying to put online right now. So to give you an idea, the Scottish government held a tender for offshore wind where they uh, received bids uh, amounting to, I believe it was around 24 gigawatts of offshore wind um, in the last Scotland auction round. Um, and total grid interconnection today between Scotland and England is seven gigawatts which uh, on many days is already fully maxed out. Um, and so there is actually an issue with curtailment of renewables already from Scotland because they just can't get it physically to England. So you start to sit and reflect on that and you go, well, if you're already maxed out and you're trying to add three times that level of capacity in terms of interconnections between Scotland and England to find a way to get that power to market, you know, you start to realize that this is just not going to happen if you have to build it all via transmission and distribution, you know, and and people, again, I think are being fanatical about this because they don't really understand the the realities of building projects. You know, I think they conceptually understand it. I think they've probably sat and talked, you know, to financiers or consultants, but I don't think they've ever actually spent much time with energy companies that have to build them and go through planning and permitting and consultation and landowner negotiations and who are constantly trying to find the optimum trade-off between what they would like to do as engineers versus what the planning and local community will allow them to develop and then somehow in all of that combination also trying to make sure that the project is commercially well structured you know there was already a big court case in the uk where a one gigawatt offshore wind farm um, required the you know secretary of state for energy to step in and overrule the local council because the local council rejected the grid uh, substation for it um, that was with a uh, another scandinavian um, utility Vardenfall. so it is a real challenge which is if you've got all this renewable resource you can't just assume, and I think people are far too lazy in presuming you can just build the transmission and you can just put down lithium-ion batteries and that is going to somehow work. You know, that there has to be a second way to ensure you can do that. And from my side, it's a little bit also of a no-regrets decision because even if you say that electrification is the best strategy, if that say that is the winning technology in 2050 – if you can't build the wind or you can't build the solar today because you can't get it to market as electricity, but you could get it to market as hydrogen, you're still fundamentally building the infrastructure you need and you're still displacing fossil fuels. And if you can prove that in 2050 you should electrify, well, great, you've already built the renewable assets and you can start to transition them away from creating hydrogen and towards electrification if that is where the market goes. But what you absolutely can't do is say, well, you know, the only option is to electrify and force everybody to then wait until that is an option. Because what basically happens is we guarantee that we're not going to hit net zero. And I get really animated about this and frustrated about this because fundamentally, you know, we're going to be living with this. 
this is the challenge of our lifetimes. And the guys and girls who are trying to comment on the sector sometimes just don't seem so detached from that reality. And so I really enjoyed having someone like Orsted and, and David actually explaining why it's important for them. And I think it's so important to hear that message coming from a major offshore wind producer that you need to be doing both green fuels and electrification. I think that was an excellent answer. Patrick, do you have something to add to that? I saw your microphone come on there. Yeah, I think, you know, it's worth it's worth maybe breaking this out a little bit further and worth flagging, you know, the, the end use case in, in terms of whether it be direct or indirect electrification is, is, is the path effectively we're really on, right? And I think, you know, for instance, I'm thinking of the, the project, uh, these, these islands that are being developed in Denmark, right, to precisely uh, avoid some of the uh, grid infrastructure, the transmission line development challenges, right? You know, converting electrons into into you know hydrogen, or not converting, but transforming you know water into hydrogen, using that as a as a mechanism for for keeping um, green energy stored in hydrogen, moving it further onto uh, you know a grid system that already exists. You know, there's dynamics here that once again we're back to design, right? Which is you know, do you build out in in Australia transcontinental transmission lines, or do you look for a a system design that that maybe is more kind of uh, dynamic, um, and it's worth just saying that there's some of these some places that these solutions will work perfectly fine, and some places where it will be dramatically more challenging. And, and Chris, to your point, understanding the length of time things like permitting take, in some cases, you know that's that's years upon years before anybody even starts to to build anything, to put any steel in the ground. And, and those sort of delays are something that we really, really are going to struggle with, um, especially given the the need for very, very fast movement and the need for, you know, in whatever form it takes, dramatic infrastructure transformation. At the end of the day, in a funny sort of way, we're, we're all kind of aligned on the, on the you know, the final intent here. It's, it's the question around the how you make this system kind of deliver effectively. And without, you know, and frankly, you know, there's an awful lot of conversations right now about, you know, how see articles in, in newspapers claiming that uh, our commitment to renewable energy generation and creation has, you know, exposed us to these natural gas uh, shortages. And, and, you know, that's that sort of nonsense is, you know, is something that that kind of flies in the face of the fact that, that there is an uh, infrastructure transformation that has to happen here. And um we have to be very, very cognizant of the challenges that will emerge as we do that. And it gets harder and harder to do that as you get further and further down the path of, a, of, of that kind of uh, full transformation. You know, this is, this is one of the tricky bits, for sure. Well, I, and I think what we're, what we're getting up against there is something else that we talked about with David. And let's talk about it in the big picture as well, because as we talked about at the beginning of the show... There's been some developments here on the North American side of things in the United States around how we are incentivizing that that transformation and investment in uh, renewable technologies and, in particular, hydrogen. So, Patrick, I wanted to get a few thoughts from you about, you know, you touched on the $3 potentially for, the, uh, for certain tiers of the Inflation Reduction Act hydrogen production tax credit here in the U.S., uh, potentially being a $3 per kilogram incentive uh, at the top end of those tiers. 
What do you think about the substance that was in that IRA and, and how it's going to help incentivize the transition and, and implementation of, of hydrogen technologies here in the U.S.? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I guess um, we've seen very, very, very strong precedence of the effectiveness of this with the, the, the wind PTC and the, the ITC for uh, solar, right? So these are tax credit structures that have seen massive acceleration of deployment um, of those technologies. And at the end of the day, what, what these structures are designed to do is to, you know, bridge the gap from, you know, effectively technological kind of maturity to commercial deployment a little bit and to de-risk those early projects that, that kind of uh, get the get the, the supply chain and, and the, the offtake kind of working together, right? So demand and supply kind of matching each other a little bit. Um, so, so what's it going to do? Well, you know, if, if you can get $3 a kilogram, um, that's going to, that's going to make uh, green, you know, obviously $3 a kilogram is, is the, the lowest threshold, um, of carbon, uh, intensity, uh, per kilogram. Um, and then it declines from there, but, or sorry, as you go up the, the rate of, uh, recovery declines, but as a consequence of that, you know, there's a lot here to say, Hey, you're going to have an abundance of supply going forward, and you're not going to pay the penalty for being an off taker on the first projects, right? And this is and this is on top of the hydrogen hubs program, right? From DOE, there's nine point five billion dollars, I guess eight billion dollars up front to cost share for large scale hydrogen hubs, regional hydrogen hubs in the United States. For as as far as we know, to start, so that's what we were talking about at the beginning of the show as well. That FOA. Uh, which is, you know, a little bit of the alphabet soup of American governance here. But, uh, you know, this is on top of money, $8 billion coming from the federal government to build at least four regional hydrogen hubs. And there's a little little bit of a trick there because those those hubs have a, each hub it has a focus on a particular production technology, right, Patrick? So a little bit, are we, is there potentially uh, the DOE dancing with the uh, dangerous partner of picking and choosing winners and losers, or are we uh, getting ahead of ourselves on that front? Well, well, given that the spread of, of technologies is, is pretty broad, um, and, you know, there will be a pretty robust uh, selection process, you know, and I think it's four to eight hubs is the kind of target range. <clears throat> That's correct, yeah. You know, I suppose the other the other piece of worth saying here is that the LPO is also you know investing in 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 hydrogen related uh, resources. I know Aces got um, that's the that's the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office, correct, Patrick? Just to, <laughs> just to help with some of those. You guys are seriously going in for the acronyms today, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris. It, and and this is this is kind of kind of why it's uh, it's been a bit of a crazy kind of. Uh, probably since since may when the initial kind of um expectations for uh, for the, the the kind of uh, hub announcement were kind of pushed back there's been a lot of a lot of engagement and a lot of interest and a lot of um excitement because you know we're we've got this broad guidance and now as of you know what a couple of weeks ago we now have confirmation of what the tax credit and tax equity market is going to probably look like in relation to this space as well or at least maybe not how the structures will work. We're still waiting on the IRS, the internal revenue uh, service to provide its rules on, on, on tax credits. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there is a lot of resourcing going into this and, you know, 
I, I think you know we've got everything from a nuclear hub being mandated to some um, you know some blue hubs likely some green hubs. Um, the structures of that's those. what we call the the Joe Manchin special there Patrick there you go what what do what do I know about West Virginia politics but um no look it, it's 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 also you know looking at multiple different use cases and you know it, it's there's a lot of coalitions a lot of folks starting to work on these things a lot of very interesting kind of stuff coming out now um, and at the end of the day we went from you know, maybe a year or so ago, talking about how far the U.S. is behind in in accelerating in this space. So now, it, it probably one of the more you know tangible policy um, actions or series of actions that that we've seen probably globally, and that's before we even get into kind of state incentive structures and other kind of related kind of you know. For instance, you know, like, like transforming or transforming different systems or, you know, state policy priorities, right, for, you know, X, Y, or Z sector. Yeah, watch this space. It's, it's going to be it's going to be very, very interesting, especially given that that eight billion dollar injection that's going to come in in the next year or so effectively. And yeah, it's going to be wild. Stay tuned. It's going to be wild. Wise words from Patrick Malloy. Chris, you've been un characteristically quiet during our discussion here on the policy side of things. Anything to add before we, uh, before we sign off on this one for the week? No, I was going to say, um, it, it, I think from the policy side, the super interesting thing will be, you know, um, sort of bringing full circle of the conversation, seeing how the U.S. approach actually differs from the approach in the U.K. Well, it is a different approach to the approach that's been taken in the U.K., and it will be interesting to see which approach is more effective, right? You know, the U.K. is going through this stuff at the moment. Um, they've just opened up the government's uh, electrolytic price support competition or hydrogen business model competition. So the first bids are coming in uh, already. So we are already a few months ahead of the U.S. So I'm super interested just to see, you know, which structure works better for actually incentivizing end users and producers to come into the market. And something that I would be really uh, surprised to see how it works out is, you know, the U.S. has kind of gone for, a, you know, the government knows what it's going to cost them. Right. I mean, you know, they've set a price. so They kind of know what that will cost them. Um, but equally, if you're a producer in the U.S., you know, there's still quite a lot of variable cost components. You know, a tax credit PTC was great for solar or wind because it's mostly capex. And once you've built it, you're amortizing capex. Hydrogen is very different. You're still going to need a feedstock, whether that's green electrons or whether that's, you know, if you're doing blue hydrogen, um, natural gas. So, you know, that variability introduces quite a lot of risk into the, the margins that those projects may make over time. You know, and you contrast that with the UK, where there's a uh, electrolytic price support as a contract for difference model, where the government, you know, has a pot of money, but potentially could blow through that in really extreme um, situations. Uh, but if you're an investor, they are giving you some kind of cap on, you know, the, the financial exposure that you have from the private sector. I, I just would be really interested to see how that plays out, um, you know, especially because so many of these big majors like the Allstoods and Shells of this world are looking really closely at the two markets and, you know, trying to see which models work and take those approaches into other jurisdictions, frankly, and say, look, this works well in the UK or this didn't or this worked well in the US. So I'm uh, in the next six months, I'll be really keen to see. And, uh, you know, that that's all I wanted to say on that. See which one, see which one works better. No, I think it's an excellent point. And it will be interesting to see how that shakes out. It's also as listening to 
some other analyses the other day around the uh, hydrogen PTC and the IRA more generally. You know, they pointed out something that's interesting and a kind of a novel approach for the United States as well, which is that the IRA is almost all carrot and no stick. You know, it's almost all incentives and very few penalties or regulations, at least as it was grafted. We'll see what the IRS has to say about that in terms of implementation, but should be interesting to see how these things shake out, guys. But uh, let's uh, call it there for the day and uh, we'll catch you on the other side for the next episode. Thanks a lot, guys. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to David Wellard, Regulatory Affairs Manager for Orsted, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.